you doing? Good afternoon, everyone. Good to be together again. Obviously, greetings to our those of us, those of you joining us on the live stream. Certainly, hope your Sabbaths are a good one wherever you are. Today happens to be the first full day of summer. We've been waiting for this for a long, 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 long time. It's been a long, cold winter, lots of rain. Obviously, planting seasons are late, as I'm sure you all well know. School's finally out. The uh, our our kids are, uh, I think, in our group here. We're we're now done with high school. The last uh, the last high school uh, uh, student has completed his high school, and that was this week. The those of you in post secondary obviously are are off in summer jobs and. We're all looking forward to time off. The here in North America with the um, short summer season, especially up here in the north, it's the season for weddings, it's the season for vacations, it's the season for cottage time and trying to cram all of our, our leisure time into a short eight to ten week period. We wait so long for this long cold winter and this spring has been a late one, obviously with God's calendar as well. Uh, being a the intercalary uh, year with the extra month, this is part and parcel of also a late spring season, typically. But let's uh, go with Ecclesiastes 5 as we begin, because it seems like it's the time of year to take a break. We get through the busyness of spring, both um, in our spiritual lives and in our physical lives, and we come to summer, and it's the time to take a break, to exhale and relax. And we see this here, an interesting passage here in Ecclesiastes 5 that I'd like to begin with. In verse 18, Ecclesiastes 5, verse 18, this is where we'll start. And the writer here says, Here's what I have seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him, for it is his heritage. So here we see the scripture that tells us it is good to take a break. It is good to enjoy the fruits of our labor, to enjoy the fruit, the, the food and drink and, and social time and, and here where we have our vacation time and cottage season and all this time where the, the, even if you are working, the sun doesn't go down till 9 or 9.30, and we get some extra time together. But what about us here in the body of Christ? If you've been following our messages, both here locally and for those of you who are on the live stream, you've seen this build up to Passover. We've been talking about, for several months, the spring Holy Day season. We had a long lead up into Passover. Once we got through Passover and the Days on Lemon Bread, we systematically counted down to Pentecost through the Feast of Weeks on a daily and a weekly basis. And two weeks ago, we came to that culmination of the Feast of Atonement, the Day of Atonement that, that culminated and finished the Feast of Weeks. And I remember, because here locally, we put on the, we did a lot of the, the work for our local congregation where we do the, uh, where we combine the CGI congregations in Ontario. And our congregation did a lot of the collective work on the Day of Pentecost. So it was appropriate, I remember, at the end of that, as we were done and packed up and finished and all of the work that led from Passover all the way through to the Feast of Pentecost, 
it was like a collective exhale that all the work was finally done. And now we were headed into the, the lull of the summer. We've got, in fact, from today, it's exactly 100 days until the Feast of Trumpets, when the fall holy days begin. It felt appropriate to just take a collective break. But is that appropriate from a spiritual standpoint? Is that where we can just take the summer off and then kick it back in at the Feast of Trumpets? Let's close the loop here with context to where we were in Ecclesiastes 5. We're going to read verses 19 and 20 and get context. So we did read, it is good in verse 18, it is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life which God gives him, for it is his heritage. So it is good to take a break. There's nothing wrong with with enjoying life a little bit. But with context here, and as the this piece of wisdom writing, as you as you work through it, we can see the 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 and we don't certainly don't have time to go off on a tangent into what Ecclesiastes is about, but not everything in Ecclesiastes is is a a piece of fine wisdom. This is a man who is struggling with his humanity. So much like Job, there's certain things that we have to read in Ecclesiastes and in, in Job to actually get the context here. And here the, the writer provides this context in verse 19. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. For he will not dwell unduly on the day on the days of his life because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. So while we are busy enjoying the fruit of our labor, keep in mind who provides that fruit of that labor. That as followers of God and followers of Christ, every day and all of our blessings, all the fruits of our labor are be are are should point us back to the gifts that we get from God. And here when we read this word unduly, really it's that we will not dwell excessively or immodestly or immoderately, that we keep it checked and in balance when we do it, enjoy the fruits of our labors. And again, as we work through these pieces of wisdom literature, it's good to take into account the context so we get exactly what the meaning is of, of what the writer is talking about. But the Holy Days give us an opportunity to rehearse, and we've discussed this many times, to rehearse God's appointed times. And for all their rich meanings, for all their in-depth uh, lessons that we learn from God's holy days as it points to the plan of salvation that God has for us and that we, we continue to learn about on a weekly, and a monthly, and a yearly basis. And we look forward to the fall holy days in a few short months, 100 days to be specific. Part of the message of the Feast of Weeks was that, that we covered, and we've covered here, was that we needed to wait until Pentecost. That was part of the lesson. Let's go to Acts chapter 1. And see that that the the disciples, as they were coming through following the the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, as they were waiting to eagerly wait, wanting to get on with their life, get on with what Christ had, what they were hoping was the the direction of uh, from from their Savior. We see this here in Acts chapter 1, and we'll begin in verse 4, and we'll read through verse 8. Acts chapter 1, verses 4 to 8. We see this, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, 
you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And we've covered that before. There was, They saw Christ. They were still in a physical mode and being persecuted by the the uh, the uh, Romans that were at the time, they were looking forward to their Messiah taking back his kingdom. And they were looking forward to this. And now that he was resurrected and they were witnesses to, the, to this resurrection, they were hoping it was now. But he said, it's not for you, verse 7, it's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And he tells them there's a reason why they need to wait for Pentecost. And we've co- we covered that uh, recently in a sermon on the Feast of Weeks. But it was for a purpose. As they came out of Pentecost, there was work to do. And we see that covered here. So my question to us today is now what? We've come through Passover. We, this year, systematically worked through the Feast of Weeks on a daily basis and then on a weekly basis. So now what? We are two weeks out from Pentecost. We've got the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Tabernacles well down the road, a few months down the road. We understand the Holy Days are a rehearsal period, and we find ourselves in a a lull in between seasons right now. What is our responsibility towards God during this period, this lull time? Is it a time to, to take a collective breath and put our feet up and enjoy the fruits of our labor for the entire summer. What is our responsibility this time of year when the natural inclination is to take a break? Is it time to play or is it time to build? So let's take a look at that. We're, we're here in Acts 1. Let's stay here for a second and remind, just read what we read. We're going to read verse 8 again because we see there was a reason for the receipt of the Holy Spirit. There was a a purpose that God gave his Holy Spirit to his followers. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be, with this Holy Spirit, you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We see back in Luke 24, Christ was adamant. Luke 24 is where we'll turn. that they needed to understand why they were being given the Holy Spirit, why it was important to wait for Pentecost. And we we covered that, and this is just sort of setting up the rest of the message here as we introduce this. We're just going back and covering some things we covered before in the lead-up to Pentecost. In verse 49, he says, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem, until you are endued with power from on high. So I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. We've covered there where it looks like the disciples received it them said that the ones who became apostles received it ahead of the Trump ahead of the Feast of Pentecost. We won't go off on that tangent now. Something happened for sure where he breathed the Holy Spirit upon them. The rest of them waited until Pentecost to receive the Holy Spirit. But it was for a purpose. Until you were endued with power from on high. 
not just to help themselves, not just to make them righteous, but for a reason. John 15 covers this as well, just by way of as lead up. John 15. So Luke writes it here, Luke writes it in Acts, and then John here covers a similar message. Verse 26 is what we'll read, John 15. But when the Helper comes, that the Father will send, that the Father shall send, that I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth that proceeds from the Father will testify of me. And you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the very beginning. So there's some things that Christ expected of his followers once they received the Holy Spirit. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 3. And we build off of the Feast of Weeks. Two weeks out from the day, of, the day of Pentecost. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 3. We spent considerable time here in 1 Corinthians 3 in the days leading up to the Passover, as you'll recall. And to begin, we'll just read verses 1 through 3 in 1 Corinthians 3. Paul says, And I brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal and as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. From where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? And when we consider this congregation, as we did in the messages leading up to Passover, Recall that this was a very dysfunctional, immature congregation, full of sin, full of the toleration of sin, full of disunity, bickering, suing each other, um, disunity in the fact that they followed different leaders that they one would prefer to find. And we can see right here in verse four: "For I am of I am of Paul." Another says, "I am of Apollos." Who are, who do you follow? Who do you follow? So we see the disunity. We see the the um, poor marriages, the poor family family that they had, the fact that they would sue each other, the fact that uh, they tolerated sin within the congregation. Very, very dysfunctional. Very self-serving individuals, for the most part. For the most part. Not everybody, and we'll get to that in a little bit, but for the most part, as a, as a description of the congregation as a whole, they were very self-serving, very immature congregation. And again, I won't take time to recap all that we talked about in the sermon on the Passover experience, but you'll recall that as we walk through much of the first part of 1 Corinthians, it culminates in chapter 11. The first part, all of this leads up to chapter 11, talking about the Passover meal. So let's go to 1 Corinthians 11. And by way of reminder, we're just going to Cut into verse 17. And all of this dysfunction that we read in Paul's instructions throughout the, the this letter, all of these various issues that plague this group, all come to a head here in verse 17 of chapter 11, where he says, Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. 
And then he continues to to implore the, with them to become better, to realize their weaknesses, to realize where they are, are holding themselves back, and to really just shine a mirror in front of them about how how much work they still have ahead of them to become righteous. But it is, it is this word now that I, we focused on in that message on the Passover experience. And this word now, this Greek word D-E-H, is a conjunction, much like the words and, but, or if, that connects two ideas, two sentences, two, two phrases. And we talked about this before, and we said that we noticed that in as the, the uh, Strong's tells us, that this conjunction can be either adversative or connective. It can either move us from one to another in a smooth manner, or it can be adversative as a bit of a contrast. And what we see here in his use of this word here is it's co- contrasting. All of these things that I'm teaching you, that I, I, I'm, I'm trying to sh- put this mirror up in front of you so you become better. Now we're going to flip this around. I want to show you that you're not ready to take the Passover because of this unrighteousness that is in the, in the group. So this was adversative. He can't praise them because they were not acting in a way that pleased God. In fact, he was so concerned that they wouldn't even be keeping the Passover in a worthy manner because of this dysfunction, this disunity, this sin this that was in the congregation. And it would actually bring dishonor to God to keep the Passover as a group without addressing all of these issues that were among them. We covered that. You'll recall we covered that. Let's drop down now to verse 33, come to the end of this section, with Paul imploring them to get ready for Passover, to address these these issues on a, on a limited basis. He says here in verse 33, Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. At least wait. At least show each other the courtesy as you come together to wait until everyone is there. But if every, anyone is hungry, if it's just about your bellies, just eat at home so when you come, your mind is on everyone else and your mind is not just on yourself, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest, I will set in order when I come. So let's at least get the group in a position where you can honor God through the keeping of the Passover by addressing some of these issues. But at least, at least show love for one another. And this... Beginning of verse 33, this therefore, or wherefore, if you're in the King James, is also the same conjunction, D-E-H, that's used to connect the two. And here he's just making this leap from talking about how to keep the Passover properly, making this jump to saying, just you know, just try this. Just I'll, I'll deal with everything else when I get there, but just so you don't bring dishonor to God during the Passover, show love for one another by waiting. Just try that one small step. Continuing on in the letter, because we know there are no chapter breaks as Paul wrote it, chapter 12 and in verse 1, Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. Then he, can, then he moves, we'll, we'll come back to that in a, in a little bit. But he changes gears here. And this word now is the same conjunction that now changes gears. But what we see here is that the tone changes to one of teaching. So rather than be adversative or being contradictory, what he's doing now is making the leap from keeping the Passover in a worthy manner to one of teaching. And we see 
And as you study the book of uh, the letter to Corinth here, his first letter, there's a, like there's a there's a really almost marked line right there that's that everything changes when you jump from chapter 12 to chapter 16 there's, and there's a tone change what is this connecting when he, he says now brethren or now concerning spiritual gifts brethren this is a connection here what is he connecting let's go back to chapter 3 where we were chapter 3 We'll drop down to verse 9. We'll read verses 9 to 17 of chapter 3, what was read in the Scripture reading previous. So verse 9, 1 Corinthians 3. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, you are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire." Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. So I propose, as we go through this letter, and we've covered this letter on a couple of occasions over the last number of years, but just in relative in relation to this transition out of the, the Feast of Weeks and out of the Day of Pentecost, Paul, we already read in verse 1, Paul said, I wanted to come and give you this heavy meat. I wanted to, to as we come through this time of year, I wanted to give you this heavy, heavy stuff that you could, you could take and become more spiritual and more righteous. But as I'm hearing, I'm hearing you're not ready for this. I'm hearing you're still babes in Christ. Still too much carnality that you still need to go back to the basics. I, I propose... That what he's doing here is he's doing he's 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 taking these folks here that are ready for this the 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 spiritual meat, and he's doing a a, a playing playing off a, a comparison here. Verse ten says, "Let each one take heed how he builds on it." We are a collective group. We've covered that with the the before with this letter to to Corinth here. That this is a this is a letter to a, a to a collective group. But in it, as a collective group, it is made up of individuals. So here he's highlighting here that they are made up of individuals. Let each one, each one among you, even though you're a collective group, and this letter is to a collective group, because you as a group are the temple of God. Let each one take heed how you build on the foundation. So we must individually take heed how we build, because we are part of the whole. Because we are part of this family, this this unit here, this congregation, we must take heed how we build on that foundation because it affects everyone else. But individually, we must take heed how we build. This word, this command, this verb to take heed is the Greek word blepo. It's 991 in Strong's blepo. 
And it means to perceive or discern. For those of you who've followed our studies, you'll recall that there's the word judge, diacrino, which also means to discern. But this is a little bit deeper than, than diacrino. This word means to perceive or discern or to perceive things you can see physically so that you understand spiritual results. So to to watch what you're to take heed, to watch, perceive, or watch what you're doing so that you can affect spiritual results. So you can take action. So while encouraging everyone to do this, he uses this letter to do the same. He takes all of what he sees in this congregation, all of the dysfunction, the disunity, the sexual sins, the the weak marriages, the weak family life, and he's trying to guide them back to God through through his teaching in this letter. And he uses chapters 1 to 11, which we covered in the lead up to Passover, to show them that, that they are in danger of bringing shame to God by keeping the Passover in an unworthy manner, by not discerning the body, by not re- loving and respecting the group and understanding that what they contribute is reflective upon the group. And if that's sin, if that's disunity, if that's if that's um, um, bitterness toward one another, if that's a, a weak family life, that is contributed to the family, to the body of Christ. And as he walks through this, it's glaringly obvious that he is taking heed how he is helping to build that congregation and encouraging them to do the same. We drop down to verse 15, where we already read. He presents both sides here. He talks here about if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. Do you not know, verse 16, that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? But on the flip side, if anyone defiles the temple, God will destroy him. So are we contributing positively to the congregation or are we defiling the congregation in our actions? And our physical actions in this 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 way of discerning helps bring light to where where we are spiritually he then sets out in the, from chapters 4 to 11 to correct this defilement to correct the defilement that he sees so that they can keep the passover in a worthy manner which again we covered in the lead up to passover there were in fact a few mature brethren in the congregation He writes to them at the end. Let's go to chapter 16. Chapter 16, verses 13 to 18. So as much as this letter is to a very weak and dysfunctional congregation, he also knew and realized, because he was taking heed, because he was discerning, that there were still a few solid members that he could rely on. In verse 13, he says, as he closes out the letter, watch, stand fast in the faith, and be brave and be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that is the first fruits of Achaia, that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. I am glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, for what was lacking on your part, they supplied. So while the, the, the congregation itself as a whole was lacking in a lot of areas, and we 
that's covered in those first 11 chapters, there were a few pillars in there that he was going to lean on to help bring the congregation through this and into righteousness. For what was lacking on your part, they supplied. For they refreshed my spirit and yours. They, they, Paul was encouraged by the presence of these three individuals that he could rely on and he could that he could uh, lean on to help bring the congregation more towards maturity. Therefore, acknowledge such men. So, as we consider, let's go back to chapter twelve. As we consider Paul's taking heed and realizing there was a lot of work to do in this congregation, there were also mature brethren in the congregation that needed to be fed as well. The ones that he he wished he could speak to all of them in such a way that was, was heavy meat. But it's interesting to see, as we read through this letter, the, the shift in tone when we get to chapter 12. And that's where I'd like to focus on for the balance of the message. Coming through the end of chapter 11, where they he hopes that with what he's given them so far, they can at least get through Passover and have a glorifying Passover. Still some work to do, but let's get through Passover and have a glorifying Passover that will bring honor and glory to God and to Jesus Christ. Once we've at least fixed the group enough so that they can take Passover in a worthy manner, let's move forward and build. And that's this connection here, this conjunction type of word now, where he begins the next part of his letter. And that's why we start to see deeper teaching, more meaningful, mature teaching in these last five chapters. And we can see that. In fact, it has a post-Pentecost theme to it. Verses 1 through 3. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles, carried away to these dumb or mute idols, however you were led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus cursed. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. There are two camps when it comes to Jesus Christ. You either believe that he is Lord, and if you do, you're being led by the Spirit. Or you curse Jesus Christ, and you clearly aren't, do not have the Holy Spirit in you. He's talking to those, at this point, who believe that Jesus is Lord. That takes and requires the Holy Spirit. That is a post-Pentecost theme. That's where the Pentecost theme comes in, where God gave en masse the Holy Spirit to, to the two followers years before. In fact, he starts out this, this section, these last five chapters, with a post-Pentecost theme, coming out of Pentecost, having received the Holy Spirit. And it culminates, if you go back to chapter 15, in verse 50, it culminates with the message on trumpets, the Feast of Trumpets. Now I say, brethren, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but us shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. 
for that trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and shall be changed. And again, we won't take time to, to go too deep into that right now. But as he switches from, from getting them ready for Passover and dealing with the, the, the sin and the dysfunction, at least getting them through a glorifying Passover, and then switches gears to help them build, we can see the connection. He starts out with a connection to Pentecost, talking about having the Holy Spirit, and culminates in the Feast of Trumpets. This is part of the building process, where we now go back and, and follow his instruction, where he said, take heed how you build. You now have the Holy Spirit, and that's what this, these, these festivals of God we know are rehearsals. They take us through the plan of God. And the Pentecost was all about providing the Holy Spirit to people, the people of God. We now see this is really this summer period that we're talking about in this in this whole rehearsal phase of God's plan. What is the church responsible for coming out of Pentecost leading up to the Feast of Trumpets? If we if we play that through our minds through this rehearsal that is the holy days, that's kind of the summer period. That's kind of the summer period that we have on a rehearsal basis every year. So what is our responsibility in between Pentecost and Trumpets? It's building the temple of first fruits, building the body of Christ that we have been called into. It's kind of, again, kind of like our summer rehearsal time. This is the, the, what we call, what we've referred to as the church age in between the Holy Day seasons. So, let's go back to chapter 12. And for the balance of the, the sermon, let's look at this heavier meat that he was providing for us. That once he got the, the, the weaknesses cleared up so that they could keep Passover, they come out of Pentecost. It's now time to take heed how we build. So how do we build? We have that covered here in the next five chapters. For those of you taking notes, I'm just going to be, we're just going to go through a, a bit of a, a survey here. I don't really have scriptures noted down, planned that we're going to read, so we're just going to, going to follow through here. It begins in verse 4 of chapter 12. There are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. And we're not going to read all five chapters, we're just going to pick, pick through here and see how we build. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but is the same God who works all in all. And as you're we're reading through here, this head, this this deeper understanding that he wanted to, that he was talked about in the third chapter, that he had initially wanted to talk about. Compare that to the dysfunction that he covered in the first 11 chapters and all the disunity. And immediately he starts out, if we can get through Passover and we can get through the, the Pentecost and we get to the, this building phase, it starts with understanding the required unity in the body. We all have different gifts, but we belong to the same God. We all have different talents, but we all have the same Holy Spirit within us. We're all saved by the same Christ. Verse 7, the manifestation of the Spirit is given 
to each one for the profit of all. And there's this, this collective thought here where we are collectively the temple of God, but take heed how each one of you builds because we all contribute in a way to the body. And how we contribute, where we are with God, where, how, how mature we are in the Holy Spirit, we see here in verse 7, is made manifest by what we provide to the body, what we are contributing to the body of Christ. For to each one, for to one, not each one, but to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healings by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. And we see that here in the body. If you're watching on on, uh, live stream, wherever you do fellowship, we all have different talents. We all have different gifts. The, 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 the biblical word is gifts. Those who God takes our talents and we give in, 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 indwell, indwells us with his Holy Spirit. These become gifts of the Spirit. But what we see here is these gifts, and we've covered this, I'm sure, before. These gifts are part and parcel of what we owe back to God through serving his people and serving the congregation. But we must use our gifts. We can't we can't be jealous of someone else's gift and then try to be that person. We need to appreciate and honor what God has given us, what he has gifted us to do, and do that for the profit of the body. But verse 11 tells us, one in the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. It's God who places you where he wants in the body. It's God who gives you these gifts to serve the body because he, this is what he feels his body needs from you at this time. And that's where Paul starts out in this building process, helping them understand how to build the body of Christ, how to build that temple that they were a part of. And that is understanding that we are gifted by the Holy Spirit to contribute. And again, immediately he starts out with this idea that we need to contribute, that we need to do something for the body. Chapter 12 continues. We won't, again, we won't take time to go through all of it line by line, but I do encourage you in your studies to, as we come out of Pentecost and as we go into these, this, this summertime season of building, that we see this interesting delineation between the first 11 chapters and the last five chapters and how the last five chapters are this heavy meat that we've studied before. And understanding that it is an honor to be a part of the body of Christ. It is an honor to be given his Holy Spirit to contribute. Verse 15, If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, it is therefore not of the body. If the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, it is therefore not of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? God needs, and again, we've covered this before, but you know what? We are humans, and we rehearse this every year because it is so easy to to forget. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If we all wanted the same gift and we all didn't wanted the same thing because that was the coolest gift, the body would suffer. We would be really good at one thing and no no good at anything else. And quite frankly, that really good thing we would be good at, it probably wouldn't be very beneficial or profitable to, to anyone because of 
that because of that attitude. Or he continues here, if the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set members, each one of them. So we are a collective temple made up of individual members. And God has set the individual members exactly in the body where he wants. Exactly where in his wisdom and his grand vision of how he is building his body just where he pleases. And if all were one member, where would the body be? Dropping down to verse 27. Again, understanding the the various gifts that are in the body. You are of the body of Christ and members individually. So again, this concept that each one of us matters in the body, but it's, it is how we are worked into the whole. God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, then prophets, teachers, and after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. We can see both here and in the, the passage we read back earlier in verses 4 through 8, there are various gifts. We need to tap into those gifts. We need to understand how important it is every year to to be focused on building the body of Christ through our gifts. Paul then switches switches gears as he leaves this subject of gifts. And he goes into this concept of agape love. And we see that in chapter 13. Before we get to chapter 13, though, what we see there in verse 31 is earnestly desire the best gifts. And yet I show you a more excellent way. And oftentimes we think that then talks into and is covering agape. In part it is. But let's read through this and and see see really how this plays plays in here. Though I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. So he starts out in chapter 12 talking about these gifts. And as he does, understanding that this is this heavy meat, this is the maturing process he's trying to help them build with. He takes a break from gifts and refocuses their mind on, uh, refocuses them on the mindset they need to have so that they are profitable for God. And that is understanding that it is this concept of agape, this self-sacrificing uh, type of godly love that we call agape. And we've studied it. The, the Bible, especially the New Testament, is full of, of understanding what, this, what agape is all about. We covered it, quite frankly, in the 50 days of the Feast of Weeks where we covered uh, Peter and, and, and his part of his instruction in second peter chapter one we then and this is a we then go into a little more descriptive detail of what agape is we won't cover that here right now verses four through through ten which is in part some of the most famous passages many weddings use this um, in in describing what godly love is but again keeping in mind that this is being written to an immature congregation trying to get them through Passover, dealing with all this dysfunction that he dealt with in the, in the beginning, trying to include some some mature meat for those folks like the, the ones mentioned at the end to help them build the temple, assuming that they're going to get through this Passover. He then comes into verse 11 and says, When I was a child, 
I spoke as a child, and I understood as a child. I thought as a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. And I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am. This is, if I'm reading this and this is written to me, this is a pretty harsh statement of the congregation. It's also very encouraging. Encouraging. It's it it's it's implores us to grow up. And this is when we look back. We don't need to turn there, but back in chapter three, where he was comparing the the two type the two types of people that were in the congregation. These very immature folks that needed milk versus the strong ones that he was really hoping to feed with strong meat. He's really imploring them here that it is time to grow up. Stop thinking of yourself. Stop thinking about what the church can do for you. Stop thinking about loopholes and how you can stay in the church and, and look good before God, but still not give up all of your sinful ways, still not put away all of your, your the pride and the, and the, the, the issues that, that each of them had that we have as human beings. When I was a child, I spoke as a child and I understood as a child. But I want you, all the way back in chapter 3, I, I want you to build. I want you to be mature people. It is time to look in the mirror and time to grow up, is what he is telling them here. Then he brings this passage to a close in, chapter, in verse 13 where he says, And now abide faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. We've studied this before, and again, recall that this is just a letter that is being written. When he closed out chapter 2, he talked about the most excellent gift. Love isn't a gift. Love is God's character. It is is what we need to be. It is, is, as you walk through the fruit of the Holy Spirit, when you walk through uh, Peter's uh, maturing process that he covers in the first chapter of his second epistle, it always finishes up with agape. Because that is the character of God. That is what defines God. We see here this described for, he breaks it down for us in verses 4 through uh, 8 here in this chapter that we didn't read. But this is part of the maturing process. This is part of where we need to get to as the body, as individuals in the body of Christ and collectively as the body of Christ. It's almost like he, he takes a breath because he wants to talk about the greatest gift. But before you even get to the greatest gift, we need to understand that we need to be we need to be filled with agape. We need to understand how God thinks, how God acts, and this is part of the maturing process too, to come to that full fullness of what agape love is. So chapter fourteen, he then goes back to this discussion on gifts, where he says, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. So there you have it right there. Love isn't a gift. He says, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. So when we go back to the end of chapter 12, where he said, I earnestly, earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. He wasn't showing them a more excellent gift. He was showing them a more excellent way, how to be. And that is in all things, do it, be agape. Have these, this godly, self-sacrificial type of love. Back to chapter 14 where we were. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Pastor Adrian's covered that in, in previous weeks. The, 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 
the gift of prophecy connects back to the end of verse 31, which is the more excellent way. But it's understanding what prophecy is, what the gift of prophesying, not the gift of prophecy, but the gift of prophesying, what it really is. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. He who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. And we covered this, and if, you, if you've been following us online through the live streaming, it was that message on that others may live that goes in depth into the responsibility of all of God's people to be comforting, exhorting, and edifying people in the body. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. Part of that is prophesying and opening the scriptures and what we what we would call the prophets. But in all things, in all things prophesying, it is about edifying, exhorting, and comforting the body. It is not about being predictive. It's not about looking the smartest and understanding that who it's 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 good to do this, but it is not all about looking the smartest. It is about offering comfort, exhortation, and exhortation to the people of God to help them get through, to take this these folks like these folks in Corinth and bring them to the point of maturity where they can now receive spiritual meat. That is the gift of pride. That is the greatest gift, the ability to teach the ability to comfort, the ability to exhort people towards God. We, we often go back to Daniel 12. We quite often go back to Daniel 12. I'll just quote that back in Daniel 12, verse 3. That lines up with this teaching of Paul here about the, the gift of prophesying being the greatest gift. Daniel 12, verse 3 says this, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. That is why the gift of prophesying is the greatest gift, and why Paul is trying to encourage them. They need to get to this point where they, not are, they aren't the receivers of the prophesying, of the exhorting, the comforting, and the, exhort, and the edification, but they are the providers of this because they are the spiritually mature group of people that aren't focused on themselves. They understand where their gifts are. They understand where my gift it plays in relation to all of your gifts and what I contribute. So then I can take this, this mature love that God is trying to build in me and I can provide comfort to those who need comfort, edification to those who need it. Verse 5 in chapter 14. I wish you all spoke with tongues but even more so that you all prophesied. I wish everyone could comfort men. I wish that everyone could exhort people to better behavior. I wish you all were able to edify when you speak to people, when you speak to the body, when you use your gifts with agape being its foundation. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless he indeed interprets that the church may receive edification and it is all about edifying God's people we then 
again, take time you take time yourself as you're working through this summer to 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 see this this building process that Paul is going through here in the last half of the of his first letter to Corinth. Dropping down to verse 26, again comparing, he then talks. He previously continues on this this concept of gifts, but now he then talks about these healthy marriages and healthy families that are the basis of healthy congregations. Because when you go back into the first half, you recall the the sin that they allowed in. How this and it wasn't just sin; it was it was sexual sin within a family, and how that would absolutely destroy a family to allow that in. You see that in chapter 5. And the exhortation here to build strong family foundations. A strong church is made up of strong families with strong marriages. And how this is all part and parcel of the order that is in God's church, that is that is in the body. That God likes order. God likes order. From the very beginning in Genesis where the first thing he introduced was marriage. He made he made a helper for his creation so that they would come together and not just be fruitful and multiply, but help each other through and build, building this, this foundational concept of marriage that society is, is fast losing but is, is based on. And we see, we won't take time to read much more here in, in chapter 14, but we see this, this concept of, of of healthy marriages and healthy foundation in the church that Paul is trying to convey to them. We then go to chapter 15. Again, as we call it, chapter 15, he then continues on into another element of building where he says in verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received and in which you stand, but which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So again, all of this building comes to fruition in how they understand what the gospel is, because it is this gospel that edifies. It is this gospel that will exhort, and it is this gospel that will comfort all of the, all the, the body of Christ and those that the body of Christ affects. It is, it is this complete understanding of the gospel that helps with this gift of this greatest gift of prophesying. For I deliver to you, verse three, first of all, that which I also received. He got it, we know that he got it from Jesus Christ personally, the three years he spent in Arabia. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all of the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me as by one born out of due time. So again, as he brings them through this building process, the focus is on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what is that gospel? That he died for our sins and that he rose again. Certainly something we know, certainly something that is is the foundation of our belief system. But this weak congregation was losing focus on that. They were more focused on themselves. They were more focused on on the loopholes that they could satisfy their own lusts and desires and and whims 
while still remaining a visible member of the body of Christ. But as he's building them towards, from Pentecost towards the Feast of Trumpets, it's all part and it's all leading up to a complete understanding of what this gospel is, because it is this gospel that saves. Down in verse 12. If Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Amongst them, as they were as they were focused on their own their own desires and their own whims and all of these these sins that were plaguing them and this immaturity that was plaguing them. What happens is false doctrine is, is, it is easy for false doctrine to creep in. And amongst them, they were starting, there was, a, there was a, a, in part, a belief that there is no resurrection. So Paul addresses this as being crucial to a, this, a, a maturing congregation. If there's no resurrection of the dead, verse 13, then Christ isn't risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up. If, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ isn't risen. This is almost like those uh, word puzzles, where you go from one word to another, and you change one letter, and it's a, a word ladder. He just goes from, well, if this is the case, then this is the case. And if this is the case, this is the case. So this one, this one idea that maybe Christ wasn't resurrected creeps into a weak congregation. And Paul is showing the mature folks, the Stephanases and the, the, other, the other ones that are there, to help them through this, to go, well, if it's this, then this is the result. And if this is the result, this leads to something. And then this leads to this. Verse 16, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ isn't risen. And if Christ isn't risen, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So all this hope that we preach is all based off of the validity that Christ was resurrected, that he died for our sins, we were forgiven by our sins, and his resurrection gives us hope that God can take a human life after it is deceased bring it back to life, and convert it into, into the, the, his spirit body. If it is this life only that we have hope in Christ, if this is it, our young people, life looks like you've got it all, you've got it all out in front of you, that you've, I've got 50, 60, 70 more years in front of me, life, life is going to be great. If this is it, then we are of all people most pitiable because at some point we will face death in the, in the mirror. And if we don't have this, then everything else we've lived for is, is for naught. And then Paul continues, and we again, we won't take time to go into it too deeply here, but Paul continues to, as he has got them through this understanding of gifts and understanding that they are part of this, this body that needs to work together to contribute back to the body what God has gifted them with and to do so with this, uh, this mature love that comes only from the grace of God. That this, this deep message of the gospel is what we need to be prophesying, is what we use to edify, exhort, and comfort. 
But now, verse 20, Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Again, connecting the, the day of Pentecost, the, the Feast of First Fruits, as we see being directly connected to the Feast of Trumpets here as he, as he works through the process that we go from Christ being resurrected to us being resurrected as, as first fruits. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each one is in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, or more accurately, Christ, the first of the first fruits. Afterward, those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to his father and puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. So again, continue to read through and, and develop this love and understanding and deep appreciation for this gospel message that exhorts and comforts people as, as we build this body. He then moves over into verse 35. We won't take time to, to read that too much. We've covered that in, in, in several sermons. But an, a deep understanding that there is a spirit body awaiting us, that we, that we transform at Christ's return. If we are faithful first roots and we follow through and we, we are obedient first roots and we follow God's ways and we follow this building process that he, that he talks about here beginning in chapter 12, that there will be a spirit body awaiting us, that the same conversion that happened to Christ when he was resurrected from the dead and given a spirit body will happen also to the first roots of Christ of whom we aim to be a part of. We now come to verse 50, which we read here. We're now directly, directly connecting the day of Pentecost with the Feast of Trumpets and the return of Jesus Christ, which is what this gospel, as we mature and as we, get, as we use this gospel to comfort and edify, points us, points us towards this fulfillment of the Feast of Trumpets. We shall not all sleep, verse 51, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption and this mortal is put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he, he closes this passage with this very meaningful verse. And it really speaks to the understanding of what, why we need to take heed and to build properly, and to build a mature body of Christ, a mature temple. We can't, we can't go through this life acting like the, the weak, carnal babes of Corinth, as he speaks to in the first 11 chapters, and they just expect to be raised from the dead and be given this spirit body and be, and be ushered into his kingdom as first fruits. It takes work, and it takes effort, and it takes effort to build, and it takes, it takes a will to put our own desires aside, and to purposefully build the way God asks us to build. He finishes this thought here in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, 
be steadfast, be immovable, always, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. So as we come to the end of Pentecost and we have this four months ahead of us where it's, we can take a breath and we can enjoy the fruits of our labors, Paul says, not completely, not completely, always abounding in the work of the Lord so that all this, all this labor that we enjoy here won't be in vain because we go back to that verse in verse 19. If this is it, if it's just what we look forward to in the summer to enjoy the fruits of our physical labors, if that's all we work for, we're, we are of all people most pitiable. He then goes through and has a, a bit of some housekeeping issues that he covers off here in, in the last half here. But he does encourage them with some practical application of taking care of, of others. So as he's working conceptually, he actually now gives them some concrete uh, ideas for taking care of the other brethren, putting something, someone else ahead of their own interests. Verse 1 of chapter 16, Concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. Start by thinking of someone other than yourself, is what he tells them. You want to you move from this immature group of people who really shouldn't be keeping the Passover unless you get all these things fixed, to being ushered into the kingdom of God, being mature enough that you are ushered into the kingdom of God at the, res- at the return of Jesus Christ. Focus on some other, some other brethren. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first of the week, let each one of you lay something proper aside, lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. So again, giving them something concrete with which to work here. And then he ties things, kind of ties things together here with some housekeeping and some other encouragement that we already read when we read verses 13 through 18. All of this contrasts the behavior issues that he he covered in the first 11 chapters when he talks about the the disunification where they were following individuals a mature congregation as he's helping them build in these last five chapters points them to Christ points them to using their gifts not for their own glorification but for the glorification of God for the benefit of others understanding that God placed me here and gave me this gift because he needs this gift in his body I may want that gift. That looks like a really cool gift. I wish I could be like that person. But God didn't give you that. God asked you to be this. And you know what? That's just as important as his gift. Even if as human beings, we place preferences on on other gifts. Except for the fact that the greatest of all gifts is the gift of prophesying. Because prophesying provides comfort, exhortation, and edification to the body. We see sexual sins covered that were tearing the church apart. He covers a mature congregation doesn't isn't like that. A suing each other, all of these things that bring dishonor and disunity to the body. He covers those in the first eleven chapters, and then in these last five, he helps them take heed on how they build. You want to build a strong temple? You want to come out of this this spirit filled day of Pentecost? looking forward to the fulfillment of the Feast of Trumpets, build this way. 
build this way, as we've seen here in these chapters. Recently, very recent as a matter of fact, the Toronto Raptors won the NBA championship. I am sure the U.S. networks didn't appreciate a Canadian team making it this far. They certainly didn't. But up here, I have never seen, never, I have never seen such collective excitement. I, I can't, I was there in 92 and 93 when the Blue Jays won. I haven't, I'm not old enough to see what it was like when the Leafs won in this area. I was there in 92 and 93. They filled the Sky Dome of 50,000 people for that parade. I have not seen the collective excitement that I saw in the, in the eight weeks as the Raptors progressed through the, the NBA championships. So much so that 59, I think I believe the last number was 59, what were they called, Jurassic Parks, groups of folks gathering across the country outside to watch games, lining up for 72 hours in advance to watch games on a big screen. People, strangers, hugging as if they were lifelong friends. I've never in my life here seen such collective excitement. The parade last week in Toronto gathered two, somewhere between two and three million people in the downtown area of Toronto. I have never seen such excitement. Never. I couldn't help but think, as I hold a mirror up to me, would there be this kind of jubilation and mind-numbing excitement in the body when Christ returns? Is that going to... Are we going to get that excited? I hope so. I hope so. Does this way of life excite you? Does it excite me? Does the prospect of eternal life in the kingdom of God light a fire under you like the Raptors playing in the finals did? I had a conversation with a couple of brethren on this topic, and a couple of interesting hypothetical questions came out of that conversation. If Christ let us know he would be coming back within a year, how would that change your focus? How would that change our focus? If Christ let us know, I'm going to be back within the year, how would that change our focus? What if, and it's a hypothetical, I get it, but hypotheticals can teach. What if, in letting us know he would be coming back in a year, the proposal was an all or nothing? It's either all of us or it's none of us because we are the temple. We are individuals, but we are the temple. Hypothetical. But what if he came back, he told us he was coming back in a year, and it was an all or nothing? How would that guide our behavior and our interaction? Let's take time this summer to enjoy the fruits of our labor. We work hard. Society is such that, that Satan, has, Satan has us so distracted, going so many different ways, and the, the harder in it, the society we live in, technology was supposed to ease things up. It's just made us, just demanded more of us. It is okay to enjoy the fruits of our labor, to take some time to breathe, to take some time to connect, to enjoy the fruits of our labors. But let's do so with purpose. As we read back in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, knowing that these fruits of our labors are blessed to us because we follow the God of this universe who has taught us 
and given to us his son who died for our sins so that we may be not just receive his Holy Spirit for our purposes to make us more righteous, but so we can contribute back to the body and build this temple that he expects, knowing where these blessings come from, that they are not of our own volition, and these blessings come with the responsibility of his expectations, taking heed how we build. I invite you to rise as we close out the live stream portion with prayer, and then I'll turn the local service back over to Brother Dylan. Our most righteous and magnificent Heavenly Father, we ask you to, at the end of this message that you've provided to us, we ask you to accept us before your throne as we collectively come as a body, as a temple before you. And we just thank you from the bottom of our hearts for all that you've done for us, for calling us into this marvelous truth, for giving us hope, for giving us reason to be, for putting us in a body that looks after each other. We thank you so very much for the holy time that your holy days provide to us, that all that they teach us, all that they remind us on an annual basis and on a weekly basis, that this holy time is sanctification time, that it is time to build, it is time to be better, it is time to live up to your expectations. As we come out of this Feast of Pentecost with months ahead of us before the next holy day, as we are grateful for the arrival of summer, as we are grateful for good weather, the opportunity to spend time together, to enjoy the the benefits of all the hard work that we do. We ask you to give us reason to be. We ask you to keep us anchored in the faith as we do this and help us to realize that we are not here just for ourselves, but for others. That we are here to exhort, edify, and comfort through this greatest gift of prophesying understanding that you have given us gifts and placed us in the body to do your work. We thank you for this. We ask you to help us to kindle that fire that we may, that it may not go out, that we may continue to work hard for you, that we may continue to look after each other. We ask for a special blessing on those who are scattered that join us through live streaming. Please put your spirit upon them on our brothers and sisters that are scattered. We thank you so very much for this opportunity to gather on a weekly basis. We thank you for technology that allows us to in, to connect together from around the world, to be a blessing to others who, who are on their own. Please put a special blessing upon them, and great God, just keep us focused and working hard towards the fulfillment of your holy plan. We thank you for this. We ask this all in Jesus Christ's most holy, righteous, and perfect name. Amen. Okay, everybody remain standing.